Quiroz? Quiroz, yes, Your Honor. I believe that's correct. Good morning, Your Honors, and may it please the Court. Charles Fowler for the United States. Section 922N imposes a narrow liberty restriction on defendants awaiting trial for serious crimes. Unlike common conditions of pretrial release that actually disarm criminal defendants, cause a forfeiture of their arms, uh, 922N addresses the narrow circumstance where someone facing serious criminal charges, facing imprisonment, goes out and seeks guns under that circumstance, which raises a natural, uh, natural inference that they may mean to do harm uh, with those guns. Section 922 is constitutional, both under the uh, more general uh, framework for liberty restrictions uh, of indicted defendants applied in Salerno, I've sort of used Salerno as a shorthand uh, for that framework, as well as the historical tradition standard announced in Bruin. And uh, regardless of 922N's constitutionality, the district court erred in dismissing the false statement charge under 922A6. Uh, but I, I will focus on the 922N uh, issue. The tradition most strongly supporting the constitutionality of 922N is the tradition of restricting the liberties uh, of people facing criminal charges uh, for serious crimes. And the government's offered uh, really two different analytical uh, lenses through which to consider these, uh, these historical restrictions on indicted defendants. Given Rahimi, and I appreciated the letters, you're, you're, we're moving to step two. Uh, yes, Your Honor. The government, is, as we note in the letter, uh, we disagree with Rahimi's analysis. We think it effectively but eliminates... Us, you're going to jump right to step two. Yes, Your Honor. For uh, 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 In the specific context of subsection N, uh, half a dozen district courts around the country have tried to do this. What's, what's the current tally about what 18th and 19th century history restricted? What's the tally of the district courts? Tally of district courts, I believe, is four to four. On, four to four. On so whether, about what American history is. About whether there is a tradition sufficient to support 922N, yes, Your Honor. Which is what American history is. It, so in portions of the country, you, you're a felon because some judges think history is one thing. In other portions of the country now, you're not a felon. Is that right? For, for the conduct prohibited by, by Can you improve on Judge Engelmeyer's, for your position, can you improve on Judge Engelmeyer's historical pedigree research in the Rousen case? Are there added historical points you want to make, or do you think he pretty much covered the, the position of the government? For in the, uh, in the Southern District case? Yeah. Uh, well, Your Honor, I think uh, that opinion actually omits uh, really what I, it, it touches on it, but not as directly, I think, as the way the government's framed it in this case on analogizing under the Bruin framework to the uh, historical restrictions uh, on indicted defendants, including pretrial detention. I mean, I, I don't think that opinion really takes the... The Salerno the, it, I, I'm talking about, like, going back to the time of ratification and before then, the English and colonial history of denying bail. That's the problem. One of the problems that I want to talk about, because if the person is seriously, if they are uh, such a danger that they should 
they should not be given bail, that they should be detained, clearly they're not going to have access to firearms. But if the court makes a determination that they are free to go, doesn't that undercut that they're not that dangerous? Well, I don't think so, Your Honor, because, again, if we're talking about uh, the historical analogy, uh, historically, well, I, tell me historically where they released you on your own recognizance or with a bail bond or whatever, and they they said you can go, but you can't have access to any firearms. You can't buy for a new firearm. So, so folks Where's who that? were charged with with serious crimes historically were more broadly detained uh, than they are under the Bail Reform Act. So uh, this is what I meant in my reply brief when I said, you know, I think the defendant is, is drawing the wrong comparison because they're comparing historical bail laws to the Bail Reform Act. And the Bail Reform Act, as Your Honor points out, has you know this, this individualized process and a burden on the government to show dangerousness or flight risk. That, that's uh, Salerno. But, they're looking at due process individual. Salerno is, wouldn't you say, deeply implicated itself? What's the history and tradition that, that to justify even 3142 conditions? They're going to be brewing attacks to that on the same argument being made here, right? Well, yes, Your Honor, and, and those have uniformly failed. So the tally is like four to four on 922N. There have indeed been some attacks on the, the 3142 gun condition. All, all of those have failed, and those have failed on a couple of different rationales. One is, is that the historical record uh, of restrictions on people, including you know, looping in laws just governing dangerousness more generally at the, around the time of the founding. Uh, so that's been one ground to uphold uh, the condition. I, I just read Bruin, I think, pretty literally. We've, the government has the burden to come up with, what's the exact word? Distinctively similar precedents. It's a historical evidence inquiry. So, so, and Judge Counts here did that with what original sources that he looked at or that the parties gave him? This was an emotion to reconsider after the verdict, right? Yes, Your Honor. And he, he considered surety laws. Uh, he considered... Uh, In four pages. There was no hearing. There, there, there was a hearing. In this case. And there was an evidentiary hearing? Or not an evidentiary hearing. No, Your Honor. There was, there was a... any of the four, four district judges, have any of them done an evidentiary hearing? Uh, not to my knowledge, Your Honor. So who's doing the history? It's it's the it's essentially what's been presented uh, to this court. It's been. Well, what's the authority that we can decide history? The Supreme Court in Bruin had eighty amici, amici from PhD historians. We have one amicus. We had no evidence taken below. It, it is. Uh... Who's doing the history that's dividing courts? Is the, do, I mean, I guess this is an honest question. How do you interpret Justice Thomas's instruction that the parties have to compile the history, get the historical evidence, and test it so we don't just have judges all over the country disagreeing about what history is? Some people going to jail, others not. What's, I guess I'm, this is a question. Here's the question. Have you consulted with the Solicitor General as to where the history finding should occur so that we can review it as a court of review? I have not, Your Honor, in terms of whether uh, you know, whether it's the government's position that evidence should be introduced in district court, factual evidence, 
Um, I, I can't really. It seems to me this is a question for the Solicitor General. This is a question for the United States, not just for us, right? You've got to have the government's position for us and for everybody else. What's the answer to that? Well, Your Honor, I mean, I, I think the, the consensus so far is, is just has been demonstrated by how all these cases have been litigated, is that the parties are doing their best, given the guidance that... Parties just get to pick and choose? Well, I mean, I'm not blaming you because I'm not a PhD either, but you each gave us, I think, four law review articles, not from historians, picked and choose three, four state across two centuries. It, and, and we have 20 minutes to ask you questions, and Judge Counts didn't have an opportunity to ask a single question. It, so, but I want to follow up on Judge King's observation. Is it just the U.S. Solicitor General, or isn't it true that all three of our states in our circuit have laws that govern permitting and licensing and make ineligible charged persons? Is that correct? That is absolutely correct. Okay, so we need to hear from the Solicitor Generals of all three states as to whether they think their state laws now have to fall under Bruin. And I think... Bruin, I mean, I know the Rahimi panel took issue with this to some degree, but I think uh, Bruin weighed in, on a, in a sense, on those laws in a way that strongly supports the constitutionality of uh, disarming or at least restricting the gun rights uh, of someone who's been charged with a serious crime by endorsing those very licensing regimes and, and saying, look, we think... Uh, we, we think these criteria, they didn't call out specifically the criteria that one cannot be under felony indictment to get a license, but they, they referred to the... It's the government's job, your burden approved, to come up with the historical evidence. So where is it? Give it to us. So, and why is it apparently different court by court on what the government's proving? Well, we've cited a number of, of historical laws, Your Honor. I mean, so some of these are, are direct le historical legal sources. We've referred... Okay, what's specific about the federal yes. statute that talks about pretrial release? So we've... You can we've, make a condition of, of release that you cannot possess a firearm. Yeah. What's the historical analog to that in state, federal, common law that you can make that a condition of pretrial release? So, so for the... Um, We've pointed to detention, for example. So the, the uh, 1789 Judiciary Act was a, a federal law passed by Congress. It was preceded by two years by the Northwest Territory Ordinance in 1787, right before the Constitution was ratified. Uh, these are two historical laws uh, that broadly authorized detention. So those, uh, they authorized detention for, uh, or in the, in the case of the Northwest Ordinance, uh, required detention for people facing capital punishment, which as we explained in the brief, uh, was much broader, closer to what we conceptualize as felonies today. If we go then to the tradition of laws uh, disarming dangerous people, the government's argument on that point is that these, these historical data points, if you will, uh, demonstrate a founding era understanding that give, gives legislatures some power to disarm uh, people for dangerous, dangerousness in order to protect the community. And the historical sources there would be the ones cited in the briefs uh, regarding uh, going armed to, you know, going armed in a menacing or, or terrorizing manner. Uh, even before that, I think an important historical source on 
legislature's power. Would you object if we were to remand so there can be discovery and expert reports on what actually happened in the 18th century and 19th century? Would you object? I'm seeing the Seventh Circuit has done that. The district court on remand should allow the parties to engage in further discovery, including seeking additional expert reports. Or are you comfortable representing the United States government that you've got the history and we should decide it? I think, I think the record is sufficient to sustain this law. I mean, uh, okay. Um, and that's, that's a position you've taken. Okay. Um, no, you what? might ought to, I would think, on that very point, you're representing the United States. You better be sure that the Solicitor General and you are on the same wavelength, right? Yes, Your Honor, and I, I would be happy to provide the, the court. I would be happy to consult with higher-ups in my, you know, in my... Well, the other thing, a lot of district courts are saying they are not getting to the history because they're saying Heller carved out 922 provisions, some specific, sensitive places, mentally ill, felons. And then we get to Bruin, and Justice Thomas's majority doesn't say no, then we've got a concurrence that says, actually, we still have those carve-outs. So I'm seeing lower courts saying, we're not going to get ahead of the Supreme Court. Let's have the Supreme Court say that Bruin has changed the landscape. I don't hear you arguing that to us. Well, I, I, think that's, I think that's our step one argument. I mean, I, I think absolutely it's the government's position. But you think that, it's foreclosed by Rahimi? I, I believe that's right, Your Honor. I mean, I, I think that's right. We, we, of course, strongly, we think Rahimi effectively eviscerates the first step. We think, in other words, the, the Supreme Court in Heller couldn't have been clearer, and in Bruin, for that matter, couldn't have been clearer, that it's talking about uh, law-abiding, responsible citizens' gun rights. And, and we believe... These people are presumed innocent. And as Chief Judge Richmond said, they did have a... a the government had a shot to detain them. Um, I guess, you know, what I'm, at a 30,000 foot level, the Supreme Court's telling us in Bruin, treat these Bill of Rights provisions the same. It's not a second class right. And therefore, I guess you would agree, I think, that if you're a charged felon, you still get to vote. Uh, if you're released, you can still vote. So isn't there, is that an improper, simplistic parallel that what Bruin's telling us is now, you get all your rights. Well, you know, I, I think the right to bear arms is, is different because of the community safety uh, cases. I mean, yeah. you have, where is the pretrial release analog at the relevant time points in history that said you can tell these people you can't possess a gun and you can't purchase a gun while you are awaiting trial? I, I don't, given the uh, type of analogical reasoning that uh, that Bruin suggests, particularly given that the the societal problem of, of people charged with serious crimes being going out and seeking guns, it, in a sense, was less of an issue back then because those people were char would have been facing capital punishment and therefore detained. So so it didn't really it didn't really come up then. But I think so to it's answer like getting on a plane. Right? We're not going to find an analog back in the 18th century that says you can't get on a plane, but the Supreme Court isn't quite telling us we need a pedigree there. So you're saying here it's similar. We didn't really have detention and release at all back then? It's not that we didn't have release, but I think that the, the category of people now considered to be indicted with a felony uh, tracks pretty closely the category of people 
who would have been considered to be charged with capital crimes back then and therefore detained. And if, if you're locked up, uh, there is, it's sort of obviates, and Southern District of New York made this exact point a couple of weeks ago, obviates the need to pass a law specifically addressing whether people subject to felony indictments uh, can receive a gun. But, but I think to answer Chief Judge Richmond's question directly, I mean, I don't think anyone's found a, a 1791 law uh, de dealing specifically with receipt of firearms by uh, those charged with, with felonies, but... You could find, it could be 19th century too, right? You, well, it, it could be, of course, you know, as, as Supreme Court has explained, that would carry less weight in interpreting the founders' exact views. We believe, you know, that the surety laws that we discussed in our briefs are, are contemporaneous and then some later ones are are analogous enough, but that's that that's exactly what the Supreme Court has said: is that it, it's got to be analogous, it's got to be relevantly similar. I don't think there's a distinctly similar uh, type bar that's set there. Uh, it, it just it's an analogy. So uh, you know, I think Bruin said it itself: it did not mean to put legislatures in a straitjacket in terms of regulating gun rights. And, and I do. Um, I do want to reserve, I know I see that my time's up, uh, I do want to reserve some time for rebuttal if that's, uh, if that works. Thank you. May it please the court, Tim Shepard for the appellee. As the Supreme Court explained in Bruin, and this court recently explained in Rahimi, the question of the Second Amendment is one of text and history, not policy. United States of Rahimi resolved a number of the questions at issue today, and I believe that the court understands that. That Bruin framework does apply to Second Amendment challenges, that it applies to facial challenges, and that the Second Amendment protects all Americans. On the second step, of Bruin, the government has not provided a distinctly similar analog for 922N. Rahimi said that the absence of a distinctly similar analog is evidence of the regulation's unconstitutionality. But it did also say to reason by analogy and look at relevantly similar analogs. But the government's examples fail under this even relevantly similar standard both because many of these examples are not historically significant and because they're not relevantly similar to 922N. So the government begins with pretrial detention, which as this court has noted, is meaningfully different from 922N. Pretrial detention detains people and thereby disarms them after a dangerousness assessment. 922N impacts those released pretrial. So from your study, you would agree that a condition banning someone from even possessing a gun and then released, that survives Bruin? That there's a historical pedigree to justify the whole edifice of 3142? I do, I do not agree that there's an historical edifice to support 3142 in all of its, its iterations. Well, just, you know, you arrive, initial appearance, dangerousness hearing, district court says no guns, You're you can go home till trial. I, I, well, how is that not equally vulnerable to Bruin? 
Where's the government's going to have to meet its burden to say that there's a pedigree of courts doing that? I agree. It, it might be equally uh, vulnerable. vulnerable to and it, those suits are being brought. Those suits are being brought. Yeah. That's right. Uh, I guess it was interesting that Judge, Judge Counts, Army Colonel, decorated, said his opening paragraph, colorful, he was in Plato's cave. Just how do we know how to do it is what he's saying. How do we know that courts are getting minimal help and they're dividing all over the country? So do you, do you agree that, uh, here's the question for you. That's, the question is this came up and it had to come up quickly because you were rule 29, right? That's right. So you file a motion to reconsider and I didn't see any original sources in the motion to reconsider. One answer would be, well, it's the government's burden. And then they reply quickly, there's no evidence you're hearing, and Judge Counts does his best. It comes up to us. Um, is that the parties compiling and testing historical evidence, what we call the pedigree in a via? That's right. That is it. That's how it's done. That's right. Under Bruin, and, and Thomas spoke to this at various points throughout the Bruin opinion, including in several footnotes. It is the burden of the government. Yeah, but, but, but in that footnote, I think footnote six, you probably clearly know it well, and I, it, what was distinctive about Bruin to me is that he, they talk about evidence, historical evidence and evidentiary testing over 60 times. And my question is, who's done the evidentiary testing here yet? Has any of those eight district courts, have they ever taken any evidence? I don't believe any of them have had an evidentiary hearing. Uh, they have relied on the party's briefing, and I do think that this court has the benefit now of a number of district courts having addressed this. So the historical... But if none of them did, and you, know, you filed your response to Judge Engelmeyer's Rosen, and you say, you know, that his history is inaccurate, it's unexplained, it's pretextually enforced to the extent it exists. But how do we know that? That's you against the Southern District of New York. That's right. I do. I, uh, some of the evidence that was cited in some of these cases, and indeed cited by the government, is not disputed to be ahistorical. I, I think the, uh, certain pieces of evidence the government relies on are unequivocally inconsistent with the nation's historical traditions of firearm. For example, the 1662 Militia Act. Uh, there are many articles one could rely on, Joyce Malcolm's book in this area, indeed Heller and Bruin talk about those types of laws as precisely the types of laws that were rejected in the English Bill of Rights and the Second Amendment. So some of the laws that are relied on as historical evidence are simply ahistorical. They don't. We have to decide that as a court of review? That's right. And we have one amicus. That's right. You have one amicus. Rahimi had none. The Supreme Court had over 80. That's right. And I think that's broadly consistent with what took place in Bruin as well, where over the course of the appeal and the petition for cert, more amici joined and more evidence was presented. One of the earliest cases the district court agreeing with yours, your here, was Holden. That's right. But the court's sort of, like this judge, utterly exasperated. He even says, I hope I misunderstood Bruin. But so the federal defender's position is that even at a quarter of review level, we could maybe invite Amiki, we could use FRAP 10, I suppose, supplement the record. Is that, is that the way we've got to go with this? That's right. And, and I, I will note, uh, there's been no objection to 
either party supplementing the history the historical examples that were presented in the district court are not entirely the same as those presented in this court and i don't think either party has said that's not proper so i believe that it is appropriate for the parties to supplement and indeed if the court wanted additional historical evidence i you have it and how do you get it as judge higginson noted and i take the point it is brewing dictates that it's the government's burden so some of this is uh purely responsive on the on the that's how i read your pleadings below so so you're generous to say we could get it through frap 10 maybe a point of mickey may i ask and just be careful in your response would you therefore have any objection to us doing what the seventh circuit did and saying we'd rather have a court of first jurisdiction do it would you object to a remand so i can have you would sorry i would object to a remand how is it different than saying that we should be doing it ourselves which you did say a few minutes ago there is something troubling about remanding to give the government a second opportunity when a man's liberty is at stake that's true but bruin came down the day of the verdict that's right. no one knew what to do now we you heard us critical of him what's the sg and frankly and i'd love you to speak to it the three state sgs because the logic of your argument in bruin may compel that those permitting provisions all drop but but if it did just happen day of verdict this case doesn't look like it's had really any evidentiary examination yet below. I, I, I do think that the district court received extensive briefing on this issue, and I, and I take the point that, that the historical evidence could be supplemented, but this was not a matter of a four-page brief filed and a four-page response. There were extensive briefs filed on the Rule 29. There was a response filed. There was extensive... Yeah, I was pretty careful last night. Four pages in your motion to reconsider then the government response, this is as to the history, four pages devoted to it, then there was your reply, they did a sir reply, you did a sir reply. But even today, pages 48 and 50, two pages are all you, all the history you give us, right? There are three state laws you cite across two centuries. I'm not critical, you're not a PhD, I'm not a PhD, and it is the government's burden. I guess that's, I guess that's the core response you're giving us. Government missed its burden. That, that is the core response I'm giving, giving this court. And, and several district courts have explored the possibility of, of appointing historians to assist I in the court. A Mississippi district judge, I think, has. I, I believe the, the parties uh, disagreed and didn't want an historian in, in that case. I don't know exactly how it was resolved. Uh, but I think there is something meaningfully different about reversing or remanding a, an outcome in this case in order to permit additional historical evidence, which this court is well situated to address. Ooh. Oh, gosh. I don't know about the rest of them, but I don't think I'm well situated. No. Okay. <laughs> Sorry? No. I, I, I don't want to presume <laughs> anybody's... Uh, uh, we have great law clerks. Um, <laughs> What about my threshold argument, and you may just say Rahimi forecloses this, but there are district courts that are just saying we've got to wait for the Supreme Court to, to claw back from the carve-outs, airplanes, sensitive places, all these things where 922, felony provisions, those are not the same as D.C.'s, Heller predicament, New York's. We're now in a very different world, and I, you know, it's an unpublished Avia decision, but you, I'm, you're smart enough to have read everything. There, Judge Jones and that panel there said, this is an entirely new context. We need the pedigree. So are we, can we just wait till the Supreme Court tells us that Bruin really meant to 
even apply to the carve-outs, the 922 sections? I don't think you can, and certainly not in this case. The step one question about whether or not a person is law-abiding, United States Rahimi correctly decided is not part of the, the question of the Second Amendment. It would be particularly unusual in this case to reason that that was a grounds for foreclosing anything at step one because, as this court has noted, a person subjected to 922N is merely under indictment and no court has held in on step one of Bruin that a person under indictment is not protected by the Second Amendment. So while there is some disagreement among courts about whether step one forecloses these types of arguments in 922. I agree, and I think Rahimi shut that door. My point is a little different, that, that 922N, unlike even G8, which you have strong arguments that that's worse because there's a dangerousness finding there and there isn't here. On the other hand, 922N, the person has been brought into the criminal justice system. The government, I think you would agree, can just detain him. No gun because he's going to be detained. So isn't a corollary of that, that if the government has the power to detain, no gun? I don't believe that that's a corollary under the framing of Bruin, and, and I appreciate the, the court's uh, question. I understand the question, uh, but I don't believe it's a corollary here uh, because there's no textual or historical support for that. Whereas there may be some textual historical support for limiting the Second Amendment in other, in other ways. What's the textual historical support for an airplane, a prohibition on a gun in an airplane? There couldn't be a historical support. I, I think that the, the Bruin does permit reasoning by analogy, particularly they identify for dramatic technological or modern advances. So I think there is some, some room for addressing changes, but in this case, as this court has noted, people were released pre-trial at the time of the founding, and the Judiciary Act of 1789 permitted bail, and indeed permitted bail even for those accused of capital crimes upon a judicial finding. So it was not the case that at the time of the founding, everybody was detained or even virtually everybody was detained. Do you think there's any historical precedent for the sensitive places exception? Uh, I have not looked at- Mentally ill people not allowed to get guns, you know, background checks, just, just all sorts of questions. The, the Heller court identified those longstanding prohibitions and, and I, indeed- I said it was non-exhaustive. So my question, I guess, is why isn't N part of the non-exhaustive Heller things that Kavanaugh and Roberts are saying those are still intact? Those, it, it, my issue is not that they're non-exhaustive. In the Heller opinion, the court did say, we have not conducted an exhaustive historical analysis of these. And I think that's important for us to understand. There may be historical basis for those laws, and they did refer to them as longstanding, but we don't have that historical record in front of us today. We have... Well, one of my, one of my questions is, you say that people were released pretrial on bail, even in capital cases. There may have been a practice that was prevalent in the colonies that if, if you're gonna let somebody out on that kind of basis, that you were told you, you can't carry a weapon outside your home or or something, some sort of prohibition on carrying a, a handgun. We have not seen historical evidence of that. I don't believe the government has seen historical evidence of that. Indeed, the laws the government cite to speak to the fact that those concerns were addressed differently at the time of the founding, which Bruin says is evidence of a challenge statute. Addressed by locking them up. Is that your, your answer? 
they were addressed by locking them up yes and in addition the other historical analogues the government relies on in so far as they are historical evidence may speak to other ways that that people who are perceived to be dangerous could have been disarmed so you said that people were released pretrial on bail even in capital cases so what surely courts had the power to impose certain conditions of pretrial release what do we know what some of the common ones were the examples that we have from from the government's briefing from our briefing are or shorty laws which are meaningfully different in a number of ways but I do think speak to the fact that if there was a credible individualized fear about a particular person then you could detain the person or you could in that work in Rahimi there was a court finding of dangerousness so I I can't I mean Rahimi was decided and I and I think this court would agree that shorty laws were far more similar to 922 g8 than they are to 922 n and yet they were still not considered sufficiently similar to justify 922 g8 and one point that the Rahimi court did not address is that several of those shorty laws are of dubious historical value Bruin specifically identified that the 19th century historical laws or shorty laws were enforced protectively against black Americans and were I fully appreciate your resistance on behalf of your client to a remand but I do think if it's a 4-4 tie around the country and judges are throwing their hands up, they just need to do some hard work, right? We are sort of mocking and trivializing Bruin. When the court there with Adi Amiki said, find the evidence, compile it, test it, and no one seems to be doing that. I, I do, I, I understand the, court, the court's uh, frustration with that. I do, I just want to correct one thing, and I don't mean for this to sound tedious, but I, I believe that it's four to three in favor of, of uh, uh, but I, 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 if I'm wrong, please, please let me know. I think, I think that's four to three, but I, I appreciate the point that courts are- declaring not end to be unconstitutional. That's right. Heroes, Holden. Hicks, and Stambaugh. But, but I appreciate the point that's being made, which is that, uh, is that courts are wrestling with this issue. Uh, but I don't know that the ca fact that courts are wrestling with an issue justifies remanding or reversing where you know, the district court found and dismissed these charges and Mr. Kiros has since been released. Uh, Was I right in drawing from your reply brief below to Judge Counts in my question to opposing counsel that the logic of your argument would implicate laws in all three of our states? That's right. But a lot more people are released <laughs> than they are in the federal system. That's right. Those, those, some of those people are very dangerous. And um, so those, the, the views of those solicitor generals would be interesting. I agree. I would, I would uh, respectfully respond as well that it's, it's not merely the view of the Federal Defender's Office, but it, I, I believe it's broadly consistent with Bruin and with United States v. Rahimi. So we're simply trying to follow the Supreme Court and Fifth Circuit law. In this Do you have a thought intellectually about the Chief Justice Roberts' Kavanaugh concurrence? Which part specifically? Well, that, that, that they reiterated and quoted in full Justice Scalia saying we aren't, by Bruin, we aren't jeopardizing um, what I think of as the 922 felony prohibition. I, I have intellectual thoughts on it that, that may not be uh, appropriate for this argument necessarily, but I, but I do, I think that for 922N purposes, it doesn't really speak to, it, it may speak more authoritatively to something like 922G1, where the court has said there's this long-standing prohibition, 
But 922N is distinguishable. If the court doesn't have any other questions on Bruin, I do want to make sure to address the 922A6 question as well. As Mr. Quiros, when he purchased the firearm in this case, filled out an ATF form in which he said that he... We know what he did. Okay. I apologize. The government argues that the district court erred in dismissing that. The government, though, characterizes this as a collateral constitutional challenge, which it simply is not. It was a challenge to the materiality element of 922A6. The sole basis of materiality of that false statement is 922N. The government's cases, by and large, do not deal in materiality. They deal in constitutional challenges. The only case the government... Truthfulness is material. So if the person walks in... I mean, the district court gives one sentence and cites nothing. So we don't have much to assess that, right? Yes. But the point is, you can't challenge a question you're asked by lying to the government and then later say, well, I thought that question was unconstitutional, so it therefore is immaterial. Can you? I believe you can in this case because it's not a constitutional challenge. It's a materiality challenge, and it's always the government's burden to prove materiality. So if they don't prove materiality or if they can't prove materiality, that is relevant. I think that the Cap case is instructive on this, as well as the Bryson case. Let's say the form says, give me your home address, your serial number. It has nothing to do with it. And the guy writes his wife's serial number down. Straw purchaser. That's material in as much as the person was untruthful, hiding the identity, but it may not have been material to the purpose behind. I agree that that is material, and indeed, Abramski of the United States, the Supreme Court explained that in a straw purchase, the identity of the person is always material. No court has held the same with respect to the 922N question. The only courts to address it have held the opposite, this case and Holden. And Bryson of the United States, which the government cites to, I see that I'm out of time. Can I briefly? Go ahead. Finish it. Bryson of the United States clarifies that if this had been a challenge to an element of the statute, it might have been different. And indeed, in the Cap case, the materiality of the false statement in that case was about the value of livestock being sold. So the court explained, this is independently material from any unconstitutional underlying statute because cheating, swindling, defrauding the government is always material. That's not the case here, and I don't know that it's disputed that the sole basis of the materiality of this issue is 922N. Unless the court has any other questions, I'll... Thank you very much. Was he sentenced concurrently on 1 and 2? Well, the indictment was dismissed, so he was not sentenced. Oh, right, he wasn't sentenced. Okay. What about materiality? We didn't get to that because I've questioned that. Sure. Let's say I go in to fill out the form and it says, what's your gender? And I put male, and I'm female. What's the materiality of that lie? I'm not sure that would be material. I mean, it depends. If there's a law out there that says, you know, it's kind of a counterfactual. If there were a law out there that says you could only buy a gun if you're male... There's no law on that. Let's say we said 922N is unconstitutional. It's off the books. So what's the materiality of lying about whether you're under indictment? It was certainly not... It had certainly not been held unconstitutional at the time. I'm saying if we do. If you do, it wouldn't... Well, even if we do, we should uphold the conviction on the lie 
And I'm trying to test that. Yes, Your Honor. And I think this is, this is precisely what the Supreme Court has said over and over. You can't retrospectively say it's okay that I lied about complying with a statutory requirement because that statutory requirement is unconstitutional. I, I frankly, I'm trying to follow the distinction uh, that Mr. Quiroz is trying to draw between this body of six or eight Supreme Court cases and the situation here. But, but I, one thing I can say for sure is that this court, uh, in an unpublished opinion in Bledsoe, didn't see that distinction uh, because it applied that line of Supreme Court authority to this exact, uh, as far as I can tell, the claim in Bledsoe was identical. It was a uh, age restriction uh, in 922 violates the Second Amendment, and therefore he couldn't be prosecuted for, uh, for, for having lied about his age. It's an identical claim as far as I can tell, and uh, this court held, nope, we're going to follow the line of Supreme Court authority on this. I think that controls, uh, aside from the fact that it's unpublished, I do think it's correct, and I, I think it's squarely on point here. Um, I was counting this court's decision in Avila, I realized, when I said four to four. So, uh, That's I, I, I didn't reach. of course, you're right, Your Honor. I, I didn't realize I had, I had four to four in my head, but I, I, I was counting that one just to, to clarify that. Um, to, to make my position clear on uh, the first step of Bruin, regardless of what the, the panel did in Rahimi, which as I mentioned in my letter, the government is, is going to be seeking further review of that decision. I, I do think this court can bypass uh, Bruin. I mean, I, I think this court can bypass Bruin under the, the body of Supreme Court authority that deals directly with liberty restrictions on indicted defendants. Like I said, I've used Salerno as kind of a shorthand, but this is uh, Gerstein versus Pugh. It was a Fourth Amendment case. Uh, Bell versus Wolfish, 1979. These are all in my brief. Uh, then you've got the pair of cases dealing with seizure of assets, uh, Monsanto in 89 and then Kaley in 2014. Uh, I, th I thought Bruin said you can't let history or conflict with the express wording in the Second Amendment. Well, Bru Bruin didn't deal with the kind of challenge that these Cayley, Salerno, Monsanto cases dealt with. It, it wasn't talking about uh, in, indicted defendant. They weren't dealing with an indicted defendant. And what they did say, uh, I think it's at 2156, is that the Second Amendment is subject to the same body of constitutional rules as the other Bill of Rights amendments. And one of those rules is the rule that, this, uh, that the Supreme Court applied to the Fourth Amendment uh, in Bell versus Wolfish, the First Amendment in Bell versus Wolfish, uh, the Fifth and Sixth Amendments in Monsanto and Cayley, uh, the Eighth Amendment in Salerno, the Fifth Amendment in Salerno. Uh, the point here is that the Bill of Rights Amendments accommodate uh, restrictions on people accused of crimes that are, that are necessary to protect the public and the operation of the criminal justice system. And Isn't this a straightforward attack on Bruin? I think it's a, a new legal test. I think it's a it's essentially a uh, it's something Bruin didn't have occasion to, to address. I mean, I, I just it didn't deal with how uh, how to the extent it dealt with it at all. It said the same rules 
apply. It, although the Second Amendment might not be a second-class right, the Supreme Court has now said that multiple times, it also doesn't hold some sort of, in, in, sort of superior status uh, that would make it immune to accommodations, criminal justice-related accommodations that all of the other Bill of Rights first amendments. First Amendment. Yes, Your Honor. Yes, Your Honor. Um, I, I do see that I'm out of time. Uh, we ask that the court reverse. Thank you. Thank you. Don't, don't that will conclude the arguments before our panel. Um, the cases are under submission. Thank you.